Welcome to the Sage Women podcast, hosted by Melanie White and Dr. Nick Engerer. We have real conversations with real women, health professionals, and coaches who share stories about perimenopause, menopause, and a range of women's health issues. Please subscribe so you get the latest updates every fortnight. Hi everyone, it's Melanie White here on the Sage Women podcast and we're really privileged to have Dr. Rona Cregan with us today. Rona, welcome and thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Can you give us a little bit of background about you, about you, your professional history, whatever you'd like to share with us? Yeah, so I started uh, my professional life as a clinical biochemist. So that basically somebody works in the laboratory doing the blood tests that everyone has these days. Mm. And then um, I uh, ended up moving to Australia and um, ran a diagnostic genetics laboratory at the Children's Hospital here in Perth, um, looking at inherited diseases. Um, and then I developed an interest in nutrition. So I went off and did a master's in nutrition medicine. And then I did a PhD in Alzheimer's research. So I have this um, sort of broad background or different areas of my professional life that in clinical biochemistry and nutrition and genetics that have all come together now. And I'm a practicing nutrition medicine consultant. Um, I see patients on an everyday basis with chronic health conditions mm -hmm. and um, I'm an educator um, and I um, do, do quite a lot of teaching, teaching other health professionals about nutrition medicine. Fantastic. A, a really rich career and quite a lot of varied but related aspects to, to what you've done. Yeah, and I, I find it very rewarding in terms of um, I think uh, modern medicine is great at keeping people alive when they've injured themselves or they've got an infection. But the vast majority of people that we see in clinic, for example, are suffering from chronic health conditions for which there's no real approach. Um, we need an integrated approach which looks at diet, lifestyle, um, nutritional supplements, and of course, medications where needed. Mm -hmm. And so we're here today to talk about menopause and heart health, particularly because it is World Menopause Day on the 18th of October, and the theme is around heart health. So we'd love to talk through a few points and starting off with risk factors, Rona, what are some of the risk factors that women approaching menopause might have that might um, cause them to suffer symptoms of uh, heart issues? I haven't said that very well, but you know what I mean. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, cardiovascular disease and heart disease in women is often underdiagnosed and there is a lower perception of risk because mainly it's a typical heart disease patient is an overweight middle-aged man. Mm. And this can lead to sort of delayed diagnosis and a failure to recognise risks and symptoms. And women tend to develop heart disease later than men because we have the protection given by oestrogen in the reproductive phase of our lives. So oestrogen is cardioprotective in terms of we have lower cholesterol levels when we have lots of oestrogen around. Mm -hmm. um, it has antiplatelet activity, um, so you have less risk of blood clots, and it's also an antioxidant. And menopause is associated with a significant increase in blood cholesterol, blood pressure, body fat dis distribution, and body mass index. 
So when we think about the risk factors, it's like central weight gain and BMI is, is a risk factor because adipose tissue causes systemic inflammation and increases the risk of cardiovascular disease. And heart disease, contrary to what people believe, being a, a disease of cholesterol, it's actually caused by inflammation of the arteries where oxidized cholesterol builds up. So cholesterol is a component, but it's not the cause. Mm -hmm. So then we have metabolic syndrome, which is induced by poor diet, lifestyle choices, lack of sleep, stress, hormone imbalances, and even disruption of the gut microbiome. And that is a huge risk factor for developing um, heart disease. So high blood pressure is a, a very known, well-documented um, risk, and it's part of the metabolic syndrome. And um, with menopause, there's also an increased sensitivity to salt, um, and this can cause fluid retention in the arms and the legs, um, and a lot of people can identify with that. Obviously, smoking, and hopefully most of the people listening to this podcast won't smoke and have never smoked, but it is uh, part of some of our patients' um, lifestyle and excess alcohol. These are all risk factors. And then we have the genetics. So there's no one gene, um, but multiple genes are involved with fat metabolism, nutrient processing and detoxification pathways. And fortunately, now we have um, really good tests available to assess our genes and provide so we can provide tailored, personalized approaches to an individual's risk or reducing the risk of cardiovascular disease. So then another really important thing um, in the hormone space and, and heart disease risk is it's a very often sort of overlooked risk is the exposure to endocrine disrupting environmental chemicals, which mm. can lead to menopausal symptoms and a whole raft of health consequences. And this is always a discussion that I have with patients about their personal healthcare products, for example, and other exposures. And then, of course, we're constantly learning about the importance and power of sleep. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's becoming um, so important for overall health to actually address sleep as part of our overall approach to reducing the risk. Mm. Actually, just touching on environmental factors for a moment, would that include things like you've just had your house renovated and there's paint smells, new cars, volatilizing compounds, those sorts of things, or Absolutely. personal care products more so? It's 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 everything. Um, they are, when I last looked at the Environmental Protection Agency, there are now over fifty chemicals that are listed as obesogens. And what that means is that they actually, um, they interfere with our fat met uh, metabolism pathways and exposure, long-term exposure to these can really cause metabolic havoc. So we, yes, we're talking about personal care products. So things like parabens and phthalates, because these chemicals have a central uh, part of their molecule, which is almost identical to estrogen. So when they get in the body, they actually activate estrogen receptors and cause, um, you know, cause downstream pathways to be activated that shouldn't be. So we're talking about personal care products. We're talking about plastics. So the BPA, 
We're talking about fire retardants um, mm. in our in our homes. We yeah, paints, um, things like um, anti foul on boats, tributyl tin. The list is is endless, really. And we're introducing more and more of these chemicals into um, our environment all the time. And the good thing um, for women, we're not saying for a minute that you have to get rid of your makeup and your personal care products, but there are good websites that you can go to to that list the companies that have removed these from their products so um, that that's always a good thing to look for Mm, we might put a link to one of those in the show notes for this episode actually you might be talking about the environmental working group site for example the skin yeah okay so lots of things are contributing to heart health in menopause we're hearing you talking about not just your genetic uh, um makeup but also your environment and then there are the lifestyle factors and and metabolic risk factors blood pressure cholesterol but also sleep exercise and what you're eating and, and those sorts of things yeah um i mean the most obvious change with menopause is our levels of estrogen decline and this is associated with a typical symptom so the hot flashes the weight gain digestive system issues which are very common and brain fog so this is just a list of few and a lot of these are due to our declining levels of estrogen so during the um, our reproductive years most estrogen um, comes from the ovaries and it acts on distant sites and tissues within the body Mm. Um, and estrogen is a really important, it's important for growth, development, repair and protection of tissues. And it's also an antioxidant. So remember, cardiovascular disease is caused by oxidized cholesterol being deposited in inflamed arteries. And so when our ovarian production of estrogen declines, our body um, uses a different form of estrogen called estrone or E1. And this is produced by tissues such as adipose or fat tissue, the brain, in our bones, and in the lining of the arteries itself. And this is type of estrogen acts sort of locally in the tissues that it's um, made. And so after menopause, this is the major source and it's nature's way of giving us some estrogen back by making us fat around the middle. So, hey, thanks. Thanks, nature. nature. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and the, the problems um, with blood lipids, um, such as cholesterol and triglycerides, which are contributory factors to heart disease, mm. are more common and uh, associated with an increase in a hormone called FSH and uh, in an attempt to make more estrogen. And um, it, it actually FSH is the way we diagnose menopause in a blood test because FSH comes from the pituitary gland to drive the production of estrogen. And so when your FSH level is very high, there's like this drive to produce more estrogen and estrogen is made from cholesterol. So naturally you make more cholesterol. So when you lose your estrogen, your body's trying to make more um, and and so your your um, levels of cholesterol and triglycerides go up and studies have actually shown that you can reduce your blood cholesterol and triglycerides when you reduce fsh by giving uh, hormone replacement therapy 
Um, and I know that's that's a topic for another day, but uh, in some people, hormone replacement therapy is very um, is very advantageous to help and reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease. But estrogen isn't the only um, hormone that that kind of gets dysregulated in menopause. Um, other hormonal changes that occur are obviously the stress hormones, and a lot of people are very, very chronically stressed when they transition through to menopause. So we get changes in cortisol, um, changes in insulin and other metabolic hormones. And all of these are related to diet and lifestyle, environmental factors. But fortunately, they're things that we can do something about. And so interestingly as well, during our reproductive years, our sex hormones protect us from autoimmune disease. And this makes sense, right? Because at some point, if we get pregnant, the immune system, you don't want the immune system to recognize a growing baby as foreign and something it wants to get rid of. So when with menopause, this protection is lost and we get an increase in autoimmune diseases post-menopause. And in particular, we see an increase in autoimmune thyroid conditions and rheumatoid arthritis, which both markedly affect heart health. So rheumatoid arthritis is very inflammatory and autoimmune thyroid disease causes increases in blood lipids. So all of these things also can occur post-menopause, post-menopausal. And the net result of all of these hormonal changes is an increase in chronic inflammation in the body, which drives heart disease. I'm feeling a bit depressed now. (laughs) We're coming to the good part. Let's talk about, actually, before we go there, I did want to mention that I heard recently that somebody has realised there's a correlation between um, perimenopause and MS or an interesting diagnosis at that time. So that's kind of tying into what you were just talking about. It absolutely does tie into that because um, women are more um, prone to autoimmune disease than men anyway. And they tend to, it tends to manifest as as we start to lose estrogen and progesterone. Mm, Very interesting. So to stay on topic, let's talk about lifestyle intervention. What are some of the things that Aside from hormone replacement therapy or any of those sorts of interventions, what can an individual do for themselves to lower inflammation, to lose weight and and give better protection to their heart? Well, this is the good news because there is so much we can do and that's what we do as practitioners. We try and steer people in the right direction. So we have the best opportunity to reduce the risk of heart disease in menopause with diet, lifestyle and targeted supplements. And so if we first consider diet, there's no one diet that suits or works for everyone. People often say to me, oh, you know, Rona, what's the best diet for this? And I say, well, it depends. Yeah. It depends on so much. It depends on your genetics, um, your overall health, um, your metabolic hormone balance. Um, if you have food intolerances, which is also a part of menopause, a lot of women develop um, digestive system pro- problems post-menopause. 
Um, so we need to also consider your digestive system and the health of your microbiome, which are the trillions of bacteria that live in your gut. And they carry out lots of functions um, in our body that our own genes can't. So it's very important that we address the microbiome. So some people use time-restricted feedings, other people use intermittent fasting, some people use ketogenic diets, and these are all options, but they are, like I mentioned, they're not suitable for everyone. So I think it's about um, being very simple and basic about what type of food that you eat. So the key is to maintain a healthy body weight, uh, body composition in particular, um, so you need to eat adequate protein to maintain your muscle mass, which is your fat burning machinery. Mm -hmm. And it makes you sensitive to insulin, which helps you to control your blood lipids. Mm -hmm. And so we like to I've always focused on telling people that they need to eat natural foods such as lean meats, fish, fruits and vegetables that are full of phytochemicals and fiber um, which are antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and also support a healthy gut bacteria. Now, obviously, you know, some people are sensitive to certain foods, and that's something that we work with with people to identify any food intolerances. And so we may have to, you know, give people very specific diets um, until we can fix what's causing the food intolerances in the first place. The most one of the key things is to limit processed foods, which are high in fat, high in simple sugars and contain synthetic chemicals um, that your body doesn't recognize. And I always say to people that you should get away from thinking about food um, as just calories and energy. It actually sends signals, the components within that food send signals to every cell of our body to reflect the environment. And they tell your body whether to burn or store the energy that's coming in, depending on what the environment is telling us from these foods. It's a fascinating topic. So the if we, if we think about food in that way, then we should consider that no natural foods are both high in fat and high in sugar. So when we think about high-fat foods such as avocados, nuts and seeds, they have very little carbohydrate. And then high-carbohydrate foods such as fruits and vegetables have very little fat. Mm. And the problem is, is it's the high-fat, high-sugar combination that can override our normal appetite regulation signals mm. and cause overeating and addictive food behaviours because it, you, our bodies don't recognize these foods as being natural. And if you think about it, if, if you put a, a bowl of apples in front of somebody and said, go for your life, eat as many as you like, most people can only eat one. Mm. Whereas if you put a packet of biscuits in front of somebody or a bucket of ice cream, they can eat a whole lot. So it's a very interesting, uh, interesting thing when you think about how your body knows what a natural food is. It's, I've heard a bit about this and I've heard about foods that have that equal mix of fat and sugar. Like if you're making a cake, for example, you often have 100 grams of flour and 100 grams of sugar. Yeah. Oh, sorry, 100 grams of flour and sugar and then of butter. So there's this yeah. even 
ratio and I've heard them described as avalanche foods in other words you eat one and you start the avalanche because you can't stop and it's interesting if you think about cake I like a bit of cake if the cake's really really sweet or really really fatty you can't eat too much of it no you can't and but if you get the cake with a perfect blend of cream and sugar or whatever then you think I could eat the whole cake <laughs> well it's it's also when I, when I'm sort of explaining this to people I say if I put a bowl of sugar in front of you and gave you a spoon realistically how many spoons of sugar can you eat mm. and people say well probably not many because it's not very palatable and then I say if I gave you a bowl of cream and a bowl and a, a spoon how many spoons of cream can you eat and they say pretty much the same it it doesn't taste right if you mix both of those together and put it in the freezer how much of those bowls will you eat <laughs> yeah so it's, it's the 50-50 yeah so if we make the right food choices then then our automatic off switch kicks in i think is what exactly, you're saying exactly exactly yeah exactly so the other, the other really important point is the uh, an unhealthy diet can disrupt our microbiome, and I've been sort of throwing that word in a little bit. Um, but the microbiome is basically our gut bacteria, which have a crucial role in so many aspects of health, and the research is developing on this all the time. But not only in overall health, in heart health, um, the microbiome is involved with nutrient production amongst many other things including um, some nutrients that are vital for heart health so vitamin k2 for example which takes calcium out of the soft tissues and puts it into the bones Mm -hmm. coenzyme q10 which is really important for heart muscle and the b vitamins which are just all vital for heart health so if we have a disrupted gut microbiome then we're not producing some of these vital nutrients that we need and the other important part is that 75% of our immune system is located in our gut Mm -hmm. and when it's constantly being activated by poor food choices this can cause systemic inflammation in the body and, and that can cause inflammation in the arteries and the microbiome is also important for detoxification interestingly especially of our estrogens and our environmental estrogens so if our microbiome is not doing its job of eliminating these environmental estrogens then we're going to have we're going to have hormonal havoc in the body which will contribute more to the the symptoms of menopause and the deleterious effects so one final point on diet is dietary fiber is is very very important because the dietary fiber is what those gut microbiota or the, the bugs uh, in in your gut they feed on that fiber they need it to survive and so if you don't feed the gut bacteria the fiber they need the bacteria will turn on you as in the intestinal lining and then that just makes you prone to food sensitivities and to chronic systemic inflammation. So we need to keep them happy and fiber also lowers cholesterol. So that's kind of the dietary side of things, but obviously some lifestyle factors that are hugely important, physical activity, we know the importance of that, not only for maintaining metabolic and mental health, but it's also vital for 
detoxification in the body because most of our toxins are removed via the lymph system. And the only way the lymph system moves, unlike the circulatory system with the heart and blood vessels, the only way the lymphatic system is activated is by muscle contraction. So that's, that helps you remove toxins from the body. We mentioned about sleep, so important for it's the time where our bodies heal and repair. So when we sleep, a process called autophagy is activated, which in simple terms means our cellular housekeeping. And this helps to remove damaged and inflammatory components from our cells and our bodies. So that's crucial. And then stress management, we talk a lot about that because chronic stress disrupts our metabolic health, it's inflammatory, it causes inflammation in our digestive tract, and it causes brain fog because it causes inflammation in the blood-brain barrier. So all of these things, whether it's meditation, whether it's yoga, whether it's infrared saunas, cold baths, whatever people do, stress management is a key. Going fishing. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) some people would say that's stressful (laughs) Um, and then we obviously have targeted nutritional supplements um, you know to address nutrient insufficiencies and imbalance which can affect overall health and heart health so testing and assessment can help identify these Um, we need to maintain metabolic health with things like B vitamins, magnesium, vitamin D, zinc, to name a few. You know, the list is is much greater than that. And then we have specific um, heart health nutrients such as coenzyme Q10, vitamin K2, uh, and omega-3 fatty acids. And as I mentioned, specific testing can help identify um, an individual's requirements. And in reality, we need an integrated approach using diet, lifestyle, targeted supplements and testing, mm. you know, to, to, to actually determine an individual's requirement and reduce their risk of heart disease. And we do have some fantastic tests out there. Now, we can do a GI map and look at the gut microbiome. We can do DNA tests to look at which biochemical pathways you have vulnerabilities in and how they need to be supported. Um, And just regular pathology testing is also very valuable. It's really interesting because there's, obviously we're hearing the main pillars of food, exercise, sleep, stress. But I think one of the points that you're making is that we're all highly individual. We have unique genetics, environmental influences. And it's, I think some people think, well, I'll just go to the supermarket and buy a packet of a bottle of B vitamins, or I'll just start eating more soy. And there's probably some value in some of those things. But I think what you're saying is everyone is unique and you're kind of just scattergunning if you do that. And it's probably better if you have symptoms of concern or risks that you know about 
to go well, and get this work That's done. perfectly correct. I mean, for example, if you look at um, everybody's surrounded by similar amounts of toxicity, we're talking about unless they've got an occupational risk or they've got a hobby that, mm-hmm. you know, that exposes them to lead or something like that. But everybody has the exposed to the same amount, similar amount of toxicity. And these toxins are additive but it's how your body deals with those toxins, not the individual toxin or the amount. Mm. So one person may be much more susceptible to having the effects of toxicity because they have genetic variants in the genes that code for the enzymes that detoxify. So it's sometimes it's really important to, to know that, as well as you mentioned you know, grabbing a bottle of B vitamins, vitamins on English. So the um, one of the things that we can identify, we have identified in, in a lot of genetic reports is many people have variants in the genes that activate folate. And so the regular B vitamins that they get in the supermarket or chemist, you know, general chemist, are not going to be what they need because they need activated forms of B12 and folate, because otherwise they can have an increase in um, something called homocysteine, which is an independent risk factor for developing heart disease. So it's it's nice to know what your individual requirements are, and we can do that with specific targeted testing. Yeah, so interesting that, that even for some people taking the wrong form of B vitamin can increase their homocysteine and increase their heart disease risks yeah food for thought no pun intended rona thanks so much for your time today it's been really interesting to to have your wisdom at hand on this episode to hear about not just how some of the hormonal processes work in menopause but also to really understand the unique individual situations that people are facing and perhaps to know that there are opportunities to find out what's going to work best for me rather than just to snatch and grab at a few things? Well, I, I totally agree. And I, I think we we must uh, appreciate that prevention of cardiovascular disease and heart disease should begin early for women because it generally is silent. It's asymptomatic. And in particular, if the transition to menopause is early, then the risk for cardiovascular disease is higher and it should be assessed and monitored. So I would encourage people to work with a practitioner and work with a doctor, have regular blood tests to look at your lipid profiles, you know, your blood cholesterol, your blood sugar. Um, measure homocysteine. As I mentioned, it's an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease as it inflames the arteries. But the good news, as I mentioned, it can be lowered with certain types of B vitamins. Other um, vitamins that are, or measurements that are really important to look at in the blood are things like vitamin D. Vitamin D is very, very understated um, and important for metabolic health and the immune system and lowering inflammation. Um, vitamin B12, folate, uric acid is a really good marker of metabolic health and things like um, glycated hemoglobin. 
But if you are concerned and, you know, you don't want to, you know, take medication for lowering cholesterol, for example, a really simple thing you can do, it's cheap, is go get a coronary calcium score done, um, which is something that's not covered on Medicare, but you can get your doctor to write you a, a script. It takes about, or referral, it takes about 10 minutes and it costs about $120. Mm. And what it is, is it looks at how much calcium is actually built up in the artery. So it's much more of a functional measure of whether you have got any buildup of plaque in the arteries. Because some people can have a high cholesterol, but the cholesterol that they've got is not doing them any harm. So yeah. do you need to lower it? So... I guess the final thing is the good news is that, you know, there's so much that we can do if we know and identify the risks and are proactive about identifying these issues before they become a problem. Yeah, that's such an important point, being proactive. And as you said, a lot of things are happening within your body that you can't feel or see. And yeah. understanding what's really happening is so important in terms of preventing the onset of heart disease and we know where that takes you if you don't if you don't do anything about it well exactly and I think um, you know as I mentioned at the beginning in women it's very very under recognized um, because the typical cardiovascular disease patient is is a male and they do usually have problems earlier but as soon as we lose the um, the protective effects of estrogen as we transition through menopause, then we're at the same risk as men. Um, but not so much attention is paid um, to, to postmenopausal women and heart health. And I think that's something that needs to change. Absolutely. Agree. Thank you so much for your time today, Rona. Um if people want to get in touch with you, can I put some of your links into the show notes? Absolutely. Thanks. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. My absolute pleasure. Have a great afternoon.